If you have a Bible with you, uh, you can open it up to the Old Testament book of Nahum, which I am opening to right now as well. And because we're in this series called uh, Some of the Shortest Books of the Bible, going don't miss this one as we go through some of these shortest books of the Bible. It's a hard one maybe to find. Uh, it goes Jonah, Micah, and then Nahum. And so, so be there in Nahum. We're going to get to reading. Actually, we're going to go through the whole book today, three chapters. Uh, we're going to go through all of it in one message. The message title is this, God is the Judge of the Nations. If you're a student of history, you would know that a few nations over time would rise to the status of superpower. When Jesus was on earth, you could call the Roman Empire the superpower of that time. Centuries later, it might be the Mongolian Empire. And in more recent history, the British Empire, the superpower of the Soviet Union, and now the United States of America. And the history of each of these empires or nations is always a mixture of good and evil. Their powers are often displayed through military strength and conquest and usually combined, too, with economic wealth. Now we continue our series in this book of Nahum. And Nahum is one of the two minor, pro- two, sorry, is one of two of the 12 minor prophets whose prophecy was not aimed so much at Israel and Judah as it was named, uh, aimed at another nation. In this case, Nahum is prophesying about the superpower of that time. That is the Assyrian Empire, and specifically the capital of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh. When I say that name, Nineveh, you might know that that is modern-day Mosul, Iraq, or you're probably more familiar with the Nineveh as it's mentioned in another spot in the Bible. You may remember the prophet Jonah. Jonah, who was sent by God to go to Nineveh and tell the people of Nineveh that because of their evil, God was about to judge them and bring disaster upon them. Of course, Jonah didn't want to do that, didn't want to go and share that message with them. Uh, there's, there's him being swallowed by a great fish uh, and spit back out. Eventually he goes, and as Jonah shares this message of God's impending judgment on the evil nation of Assyria to the capital of Nineveh, he shares that, and they actually repent. Jonah's not very happy about that, but God relents. Instead of God pouring out his judgment on them, this was probably in about the year 760 B.C. Okay, so we're trying to get a timeline down. This thing with Jonah going to Nineveh and God not sending his judgment on them happens in about 760 B.C. And so God does not pour out his judgment on them at that time. But about 15 years later, Nineveh is very quickly back to its wicked Ways. And by the year 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire has come and attacked and taken over the northern kingdom of Israel. And by the time we get to then the prophet Nahum, it's about the year 645. So he's, he's a little over 100 years after Jonah's time and about 70 years after the time in which this nation Assyria has taken over the northern kingdom, Israel. 
Nineveh being back to its evil and wicked ways, by the way, they were known for just their cruelty, massacre, torture, coming to plunder and capture enemies uh, of various nations. So Nahum comes on the scene, and we know really very little about him. Let's just look at Nahum 1, verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Nahum's name means comfort. And as we go through the book today, you, you might think, well, that's not a book I would often turn to for comfort. Most of you probably haven't often in times of trouble in your life thought, I need to turn to God's word uh, to the book of Nahum for comfort. Nahum is from what remained of God's people, the small now southern kingdom of Judah. And as we look at Nahum's message, it's going to be a message primarily about God's judgment on Nineveh specifically, the Assyrian Empire more generally. And if we're going to say, what's the big idea of this book, uh, which we've been doing with each of the books that we've gone through, very simple uh, one that I'm coming up with for this book, and that is this. God is the judge of the nations. God is the judge of the nations. And I think there is room for both comfort and warning in that statement. God is the judge of the nations. We're going to go over the whole book, three chapters, but only two points today. The first point in about the first half of the sermon, I think, will cover just the first eight verses of chapter 1. And I think there's a lot of room and reason for comfort as we look at those verses. And then we're going to move on to about the, the, the last half, or actually the last half of chapter 1 and chapters 2 and 3, which really lay out pretty clearly, here's what it looks like when God is against a nation. This is a challenging book. It's a challenging book for me to study, but I came out of it. I just told Pastor Stan a little bit earlier, I'm so excited to preach from this book of God's Word. And so um, I want to pray. Uh, so if you'd pray with me. Uh, Father, I, I, I need help. Um, I needed help, and I prayed multiple times this week in studying this book. I need your help now in clearly communicating. Uh, but God, even if, even if all of that comes together, even if I'm able to clearly communicate and accurately communicate what your Word is through Nahum, I know that even still... We are desperately in need of your spirit to be at work in those who are hearing. So for those listening on the radio, those watching on YouTube or on Facebook, I pray that your spirit would be at work in such a way now that we are both comforted and warned with the truth that you, God, are judge of the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. So you have your Bible, and you're open to the book of Nahum. We already read verse 1. I want to look now at verses 2 to 8. Again, I said the first half of the sermon really will be in these opening verses. Uh, the point here is this. Be comforted by who God is. I love spots in the Bible that are very clear to us where God in his own word is seeking to reveal who he is to us. And we have that right here in the opening verses of Nahum. So let's take a look. First at verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. 
The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So we start off right away in Nahum being told, this is who God is. He has great power. He is slow to anger. But there is this reality that there are those who are adversaries or enemies of God. And we do not have a God who's going to, in the face of evil and rebellion and sin, we thankfully do not have a God that would just shrug his shoulders at all that. No, we are told the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. He's avenging and wrathful. He will by no means clear the guilty. Is this comforting to you? Let me tell you why I think it can be comforting. I think it can be comforting because I want you to imagine yourself as maybe a child who is hurt badly by someone stronger than you. And unfortunately for some of you, you don't have to imagine this because this happened to you. If you as a child hurt by someone stronger than you had the courage to tell your parents or some other trusted adult, you would not want them to just shrug their shoulders at that evil. You would want them to use their power or authority or influence to bring about justice, to bring about an end to the evil being done to you. This is what we desire. We don't want a God who looks upon evil in the world and just shrugs his shoulders and says, well, I guess that's just the way it is. I can't do anything about it. No, we have a God who is able and willing and who, because of his character, must do something about evil in the world. So that's what we see right off the bat. Let's keep reading from 3 now through 6. Halfway through 3, it says this, His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Our family just went on a vacation a couple of weeks ago, and our kids saw mountains for the first time. And I loved being in the van with them. I loved hearing them uh, just ooh and awe, ah, being amazed by what God had done in his creation. I loved hearing them as we stood in the midst of those mighty mountains, just noticing how big they were. They stood in awe. But what does this passage say about our God? It says this in verse 5, The mountains quake before him. Our God doesn't stand before mountains and quake, but the mountains quake before our God. The hills melt before our God. The earth heaves before him. We have a God who is powerful, not just over every individual and every nation, but even over all of creation. And then it goes on, verse 7 and 8. It says this, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies 
into darkness. Let me just say this, that a God who has the kind of power that is described in verses 2 through 8, if he were not good, would be absolutely dreadful. The good news that we see there in Nahum 1.7 is that this God before whom the earth heaves, this God before whom the mountains quake, this God who pursues his enemies, this God who is jealous, avenging, wrathful, this God also is good. We can say that about no other power or no other nation here on this earth. Every other nation may have great power, but is a mixture of good and evil. We can't always say that what they do is right, but what God does is always good. And so it is comforting to us that the God who is the judge of all nations, the God who has this kind of immense power, is also a God who is good that he uses this power also as a stronghold for those who are in trouble, and that he, is, he knows those who take refuge in him. So this gives us comfort. So application of these first verses for us are, is this. If you take refuge in Jesus, be comforted by the good God who judges. Again, we want a God who judges. I read a story this week of a 93-year-old man who just this month in the state court of Hamburg, Germany, was found guilty of 5,232 counts of accessory to murder. 93-year-old man. Why is that? Because he began working at a Nazi concentration camp at the age of 17 in August of 1944. And what this man did was evil. And it is right for him to be declared guilty and punished because of it, right? When someone who has committed a violent crime is arrested and tried and convicted and sentenced, the family of the victim often feels comforted at the fact that justice has been served and that dangerous person is now locked up. And just as we desire justice on an individual level, we desire justice for nations. It's good and just for God, who is the good and sovereign ruler of all nations. It is right for him to be the judge of the nations. Because it might feel, in the world that we're living in today, it might feel like everything is, is like spinning out of control. And it's true that we have very little control. But it's not true that it is spinning out of control because God is clearly in control. Life in this world is hard, even maybe especially hard for God's people. But here's our hope, Christian. Here's where we take comfort in a world that seems to be spinning out of control. We take comfort in Nahum 1-7, that the Lord is good, and he is a stronghold for in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. So if you, if you are one of those who takes refuge in Jesus, here's the reality If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what it says in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's why Jesus says in John 10, 28, listen to these words, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is good news. In the midst of God's judgment coming on those who deserve it, those who will be spared are those who are taking refuge in him. And so the question for you is this, do you take refuge in Jesus? If not, you are against him. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in our sin. It calls us children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And our only hope is not to try harder to be better. Our only hope is not living in the right nation that's more powerful than other nations. Our hope is in Jesus. Only by faith in him are we made alive together with him. Saved by God's grace. And the rest of the book is going to explain what it looks like for those who refuse to take refuge in him. And so let's look at the rest of the book. Talked about being comforted because of who God is, but we also ought to be warned because of what it looks like when God is against the nation. So let's look at the rest of chapter 1, beginning in verse 9 now. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings the good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. There's a mixture there in chapter 1 of words of comfort to Judah and words of warning against Nineveh. God is going to come and judge. They're not going to get away with this forever. And then these final two chapters are going to use some strong language. Now, I told you, many of you probably don't turn to Nahum when you need comfort. It's, it's a prophetic book, and it's written in poetic form. It's a specific type of poetry called war poetry. You don't typically, in times of trouble, think, oh, I need to go read some good war poetry right now. But that's what the book of Nahum is. And I want you to listen to the imagery that is used. It's very military, it's very, very warlike kind of language that's used as God seeks to make it clear through the prophet Nahum that God is about to pour out his judgment on Nineveh. So let's look at chapter 2. I want you to just listen to this language. I'm just going to read through it. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. 
For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. That's what war poetry sounds like. That's imagery. This is what it's going to be like for Nineveh as God pours out his judgment on them. Prophecy of what is to come. In fact, I should tell you that it would be the year 612 B.C. that this would take place, not long after Nahum prophesied about this. Probably at the time that Nahum was prophesying, if anybody in Nineveh would hear what he had to say, they would think, no, no, no. We have way too much power, way too much might. There's nothing that can topple us. And 30 years later, this is happening. Listen to verse 13. Verse 13 in chapter 2 says this, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke. And the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. And the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Those might be some of the most dreadful words in all of scripture. And words that you and I never want to hear. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. There are many things in this world that you can endure. But we cannot endure the Lord being against us. The Lord of hosts, that's a mighty name of God. In the first four verses of chapter three, we hear more of kind of the horrendous evil. Remember, God is not unjustly judging Nineveh. They are deserving in full of this judgment God is about to pour out on them. Let's look at verses one through four in chapter three. Woe to the bloody city. That's what Nineveh is called, the bloody city all full of lies and plunder with no end to the prey. The crack of the whip, rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. 
Again, just more reasons for God's judgment on Nineveh. And then we're going to hear these words again. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 in chapter 3. Again, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. This nation who has this sense, oh, nobody can knock us down. The one who has the power of the Lord Almighty is the one who is against them. And listen to this imagery of how he says he will, in their pride, bring them instead shame. The rest of verse 5 says this, And will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations to look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? They are going to be ashamed as a nation. They are going to be judged and destroyed by God and It's like nobody's even going to be sad about it. Remember, they're at a place right now where they're assuming that couldn't happen. And so I think that's why God has Nahum say these words here in verses 8 through 10, reminding them of what God has done with other nations who at one point were very strong. Empires that have risen and have fallen. Here's what it says in verses 8 through 10. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her? her rampart, a sea, and water, her wall, right? They thought they were totally secure. You know, rampart, we're, we're going to be fine. Are, are you better than them? Look at verse 9. Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. Don't you be thinking for a second, oh, we're way too strong and too powerful to experience the judgment of God. We're going to be fine. So God points them to history. And here's what it says in verse 11. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Remember, this is a nation thinking, we've got it. We're doing just fine. Look at what we have built up. No, no other nation can take us down. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. 
Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? For for decades, the Assyrian Empire has grown in power and economic wealth at the expense of many other nations, including Israel. God has threatened to judge them before, and he relented upon their repentance, but as they've gone back to their evil ways, it's now time for God to pour out his judgment. Upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? That's the last words of the book, the last words of the prophecy. They had military might, but their fortresses were like fig trees falling down if shaken. Their gates were actually wide open to the enemy. They had great wealth. They were living the Ninevite dream, but it was all going to fly away. Their princes, who seemed so powerful, are like grasshoppers, God says. Everyone will be scattered. God was about to judge Assyria. And the description of his judgment about the, through the destruction of Nineveh, the capital city, is a grim prophecy, like again I said, would be fulfilled in the year 612 B.C., not long after the time of Nahum's prophecy, which is around 645 B.C. And so is there application for us in this? Yes, earlier I talked about the comfort but also I must talk about the warning. The warning that should remind us that no former or current superpower in the world, including the United States of America, will stand forever. That right now our power may dwarf the power of many lesser nations, but our own power, our military might, our wealth could fly away in the dawn. It says nothing before God. Our princes are like grasshoppers. We should not forget for even a moment that God is the judge of all nations. And we should warn others of God's coming judgment. Some of those most dreadful words in all of Scripture heard twice here in the book of Nahum. I am against you, declares the Lord. May we not hear those words. No nation no matter how seemingly good or successful or strong, can stand against the power of God's judgment. I read a quote this week speaking about the book of Nahum from Pastor Mark Dever. He's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church right in Washington, D.C., in the shadow of our nation's capital. And here's what he said. God is committed to do what is just, right, and good. That is his character. Therefore, he will judge every nation in history and every individual in eternity. I thank God for the many ways our nation is different from the tyrannical empire of Assyria. But I shudder to consider any similarities that may exist. God will not be mocked. Might does not make right. No amount of military force or explosive power will ever make false ideas true or wrong actions right. Either we are right without our might or we are not right at all. The United States and every other nation in the world needs to hear this repeatedly. You need to hear this repeatedly. 
Success does not hide sin from God's gaze. Let me repeat that part again. Success does not hide sin from God's gaze. We live in a great nation filled with much power and economic wealth and many successes. But all of those successes do not hide our sin from God's gaze. God judges sin, God judges sinners, and God judges nations. We must be aware of this and warn others of this. And we must tell other people the hope that is found only in taking refuge in Jesus. Revelation 19 tells us of the second coming of Jesus. This might be a different picture of Jesus than you're used to hearing, seeing in your mind. But listen to what we're told of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Let me just read a couple of verses for you. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus. Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the returning judge coming to judge the nations. He is the one who will tread the winepress of the wrath of the fury of God the Almighty. And so we ought to be warned. But for those of us who are in Christ, we also ought to be comforted. Let me end with this. Three verses from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Here's what we read. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We don't just see God's judgment poured out at the end when Jesus returns. We see God's judgment and wrath poured out on the cross of Christ. The penalty for sin that was on us was placed on Christ so that we could be forgiven of all of our trespasses, poured out on him, nailed, nailed to the cross with Christ, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, because God is a God of justice. And so he must punish sin, and we were the sinners who deserved it, yet he pours that out on his son, nailing it to the cross with him, disarming the rulers and authorities. 
And if you are found in Christ, that is, if you have heard the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you have put your faith in him, then you are dressed in the righteous robes of Christ, and you are spared from God's judgment totally and completely. Not like, not like you go into purgatory and pay for a little bit until you kind of make up for it. You can't make up for it, but Jesus paid the price in full so that we will experience not God's judgment, but God's reward. Life with him eternally forever. Forgiven of our sin. That's how we live the rest of this life here on earth. And so we respond with a life of thankful, worshipful living for the God who would do this for us. Church, our hope is in the Lord who is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Does he know you to be one who is taking refuge in him? Is he your stronghold in the day of trouble? Do you know that he is good? Good.